Meet me on the softer side. Meet me on the softer side. Softer side of your heart. Hi there, and welcome to the Skylight Books author reading series. You can find out about this and all of our other author events at www.skylightbooks.com, where you can also browse our inventory as well as order books online. You can also follow us on Twitter or even be our friend at Facebook.com. If you'd like to talk to a real person, we can be reached at 323-660-1175. And don't forget, Skylight Books depends on listeners like you to help support us. So whether you're in our neighborhood or browsing online, buy a book or two to help ensure that we'll be around for a long, long time. Thanks and enjoy. Um, as for our author tonight, I'm sure many of you know, um, but Lee Bardugo was born in Jerusalem. Yes, round of applause. She grew up right here in LA, so we can claim her, which is always nice. Um, she's a graduate of Yale, um, and she, I love this, she indulges her fondness for glamour, ghouls, and costuming in her other life as a makeup artist, L.B. Benson. Um, she lives right here in Hollywood and can occasionally be heard singing with her band, Captain Automatic. Um, we're here tonight to celebrate her debut novel, Shadow and Bone, um, and it's so brand new the publication date is tomorrow um, <laughs> but it's on sale today and uh, run uh, if you don't have your copy in your hand already you've just got to run to the front desk as soon as we're done to get yours in hand um, it's the first book in the Grisha trilogy um, and it's already garnering some major acclaim and buzz um, it's been chosen as the American Booksellers Association uh, one of the spring new voices titles which is a big deal um, <laughs> Yeah. Uh, it is an indie next list uh, selection. Just keep the applause going. Um, <laughs> it's true. And it's been on a whole bunch of best of summer reading lists, including the Amazon best of summer reading list. In fact, their editors chose it for both the YA and the adult list, which is the first time they've ever done that. And the LA Times shows it as one of their best of summer reading lists, too. So I'm going to let Lee and the book speak for itself. It's amazing. Please help me welcome Lee Bardugo. Okay, so I'm already tearing up, which is not a good sign for all of you. Um, uh, first of all, thank you all for coming. I'm sorry there aren't more seats, and I will try to talk quickly. Um, and thank you to Skylight for hosting this. Um, I'm going to show the trailer that Macmillan, we now make book trailers. So um, Macmillan made a beautiful trailer for the book that we're going to show. Then I'm going to talk a little bit, and then read a little bit, and uh, then um, questions if you have them. And uh, then I'm going to give away a, a lovely prize pack, and um, and then we'll do some signing. So um, let's start the trailer.
to do with that, but um, <laughs> but uh, thank you, McMillan. I love that. <laughs> I was like, I want to see that movie. Um, okay, so um, I've been trying, I've had basically 20 years to think about what to say tonight, but I still had trouble figuring out where to start. And um, luckily a few months ago, uh, a blog called Dear Teen Me asked me to uh, write a letter to my teenage self. That's what um, they do for authors. And of course, being the person that I am, I got, um, oh, hello. Um, <laughs> being the person that I am, I got very up in my head about uh, uh, messing with the timeline. So I basically was like, I, there are a lot of things I want to warn you about, but I can't because then your parents will never kiss at the Enchantment Under the Sea dance. Um, I'm, and I love the idea of my teenage self reading that letter and being like, oh, I'm going to kill you. Um, I'm going to get into math and science just so I can invent a time machine and come and kill you. Um, but uh, in the course of researching this, uh, I went into the basement of my parents' house and was digging through a bunch of boxes. And I came across, among uh, a shocking amount of bad poetry, um, I came across the uh, beginnings of an epic fantasy novel that I started when I was 12. Um, and it's terrible. Um, it is, no, I mean, it's really terrible. Um, and I thought in the interest of not taking myself too seriously, I would tell you a little bit about it. Um, it is, um, it's set in a world that looks a lot like um, medieval England via Dungeons and Dragons, uh, not surprisingly. And um, there, it's about a misfit crew um, who must fight evil in the kingdom. And um, after skimming, you cannot read 40 pages of this, so after skimming 40 pages of this, I'm still not sure what the evil is, but it is very bad. Um, and so the people in this misfit crew are um, a spiteful fairy named Una, um, of course, and um, a love interest with psychic abilities that I, of course, refer to as the sense. Um, he's a tavern keeper's son, you know. Um, and um, there's, um, there's a nearsighted dragon. There's, um, and this is, where, this is where the whimsy actually gets almost belligerent. There's a woodchuck named Lorenzo. <laughs> I'm not, I'm not kidding you, um, who uh, has decided not to go to law school and has instead uh, decided to pursue a life of adventure. And as the child of two attorneys, I think I can tell you I was that woodchuck. So, um, but the story really focuses on uh, the two heroes who are um, a pair of fraternal twins. And the brother is Jareth, a gentle giant who is very strong but doesn't like to hurt people. And the girl, the heroine, is a teenage assassin <laughs> named Blood. And I'm just going to say, if you name your kid Blood, they're going to end up as an assassin. It's like, if you name your kid Candy, she's going to be a stripper. So um, I don't really know what her parents were thinking. But, um, but here's how I describe Blood. Blood didn't believe in killing for fun. In fact, the thought made her relatively nauseous. Only relatively. <laughs> she was no sadist either. She hated killing mainly because it was wrong in her mind, but also it reminded her of her own mortality. I was 12, okay. Um, if they could be killed, so could she. So she's maybe a sociopath, definitely a narcissist. Um, and then it says, Blood had shut up her heart and carefully packaged it in her bundled up soul. She could be cold, sometimes cruel, and Jareth wondered sometimes that they were related at all. She had a dry wit and was a master of satire. Um, 
I would like to. Uh, yeah, it was. I told you it was terrible. Um, and I would like to believe that I meant that she was in her spare time, when not you know leaping down at her enemies from rooftops and tree branches and wherever, um, was uh, penning witty send-ups of the upper classes of her fantasy world. But I think really I did not know what satire meant. Um, so yeah. Um, anyway, so why am I telling you all of this other than um, subjecting myself to humiliation? Um, because Blood was basically who I wanted to be at age 12. She was a badass. She was tough and she was cold and she didn't care what anybody thought. She was battle-hardened. Um, and at 12, things were not going well. Um, things were rough at home, things were rough at school, and you know, when you're 12, that's kind of all there is. There's home and there's school, and there's the mall, which was awesome, but <laughs> the rest of the time, there's home and there's school. And, um, and I had just started junior high, and I did not know what was going on. I didn't get it. I didn't get why I didn't fit in. I didn't get the language anybody was speaking. I did not get it. Um, and like a lot of nerdy boys and girls who spend their time in the library, I discovered science fiction and fantasy. And I think the easy thing to say is, well, sure, it's escapist. You know, you've got to avoid reality and be in another world. And this is the way we talk about fantasy fans, right? Like, we say, you know, like, oh, they, they can't deal with their real lives, and so they dress up and they go to Ren Faire. And I love to dress up and go to Ren Faire, but, um, but I don't think that's all of it. All literature is escapism. As soon as you start reading that page, you're out of your moment. And it's certainly not true that the worlds of science fiction and fantasy are less brutal or provocative or um, important than the worlds of literary fiction or nonfiction. Um, I think for me, as a 12-year-old girl, science fiction and fantasy weren't just escapist, they were expansive. They gave me a glimpse of something bigger than this petty, <laughs> nasty, strange world that I was in. And that was really important. Um, there's a line from a Stephen King series, um, The Dark Tower, that says, um, there are other worlds than these. And that was like a mantra for me growing up. And it wasn't because I thought I was going to get to live in Arrakis or Middle Earth. It was because um, I needed to know that there were worlds where courage and strength and wit and resourcefulness were valued. And I needed to know there was something bigger than this little tiny dark corner that I was in. Um, so this is all my way of saying that, <clears throat> getting choked up already. Um, this is all my way of saying that I'm really honored to be up here, not just as a writer, um, which is amazing, but um, as a YA writer, and as a genre writer, and as a fantasy writer. Um, <laughs> um, and I'm going to say this last thing too, uh, and then we'll get to reading. Um, it's really easy to say that something's a dream come true, but that does not give these dreams enough credit. These were dreams that would not die. Okay, These were dreams that I, a few years ago, was like, I was done. I was like, I had a lot of false starts, yeah, I wanted to be an author, blah, blah, blah. I had sort of given up. I figured I didn't have the talent or the discipline or whatever it took. It wasn't going to happen for me. And even when I got the idea for Shadow and Bone, which started with, you know, a question. What if darkness was a place? Um, what if all the things you imagined in the dark were real and you had to fight them on their own territory? What if you took something that was metaphorical in fantasy and made it a literal, physical place? Um, 
I was kept up at night by this idea and all of the questions that it incited in me, but I didn't start writing, I just lay there. Because I'd given up. I'd taken these dreams and I'd put them in a box and I'd you know, nailed the lid shut and thrown it in a ditch and thrown dirt on it and, you know, I'm Jewish so we don't say last rites, but, you know, gestures. <laughs> um, and I'd done all of that and these dreams were like, you know, they were the zombie dreams. They climbed up out of the earth and they shambled over to my window and were like, tap, 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 you know, like, Lee, no. So, or I don't know, that's my zombie voice. Um, and they got me out of bed and they got me writing. Um, so thank you. Um, thank you to my wonderful author friends who have kept me close to sane this year. Thank you to Jimmy Freeman who planned this party tonight. Thank you to um, my insane uh, art. You know, people ask me always, like, do you have a support system, a writerly support system? No. I have an army. I have, I have an army. I have an army, a brain trust, this incredible group of friends who support me and um, wade into Twitter battles for me and edit and come up with taglines and help me negotiate thorny diplomatic issues. They are amazing. And now, now we really start to cry. Thank you, Mom. Um, you know. I guess you're the voice of the Zalmi choir, you know, <laughs> don't give up, don't give up, Lee. Um, so thank you, and thank you to all of you for coming out for, um, you know, seeing a resurrected dream come true, so. Oh, thank you. Woo, yeah, okay. That was the crying part. <laughs> Um, and I know you guys are all standing, so I'm going to read two short things. I had intended to read something long, and I'm not going to do that to you. That's nice. Meanwhile, the people standing next to you are like, shut the hell up. Um, yes. Uh, yes, chapter one, I am born. Um, uh, so I'm going to read you a very... Um, uh, short part this is my mom she turns to her neighbors like that's David Copperfield <laughs> <laughs> yeah you paid for that Yale education um, so <laughs> I'm gonna read you um, a tiny tiny bit of the prologue and then a longer scene from a little later in the book um, <clears throat> I'm trying to blink the tears out of my contacts the servants called them Malinchki little ghosts, because they were the smallest and the youngest, and because they haunted the Duke's house like giggling phantoms, darting in and out of rooms, hiding in cupboards to eavesdrop, sneaking into the kitchen to steal the last of the summer peaches. The boy and the girl had arrived within weeks of each other, two more orphans of the border wars, dirty-faced refugees plucked from the rubble of distant towns and brought to the Duke's estate to learn to read and write and to learn a trade. The boy was short and stocky, shy, but always smiling. The girl was different, and she knew it. Huddled in the kitchen cupboard, listening to the grown-ups gossip, she heard the Duke's housekeeper, Anna Kuya, say, she's an ugly little thing. No child should look like that, pale and sour, like a glass of milk that's turned. And so skinny, the cook replied, never finishes her supper. Crouched beside the girl, the boy turned to her and whispered, why don't you eat? Because everything she cooks tastes like mud. Tastes fine to me. You'll eat anything. They bent their ears back to the crack in the cupboard doors. A moment later, the boy whispered, I don't think you're ugly. Shh, the girl hissed. But hidden by the deep shadows of the cupboard, she smiled. Okay. 
So, I'm going to blow my nose now. <laughs> that is the second shot. Yeah. That's classy. Oh, yeah. Um, okay, so now we're going to jump forward a little. So that, um, that idea I told you guys about, what if darkness were a place, turned into the shadow fold, which is this swath of uh, near impenetrable, yes, I survived the shadow fold, woo! Um, um, this swath of near impenetrable darkness that is crawling with monsters that feast on human flesh. And um, it has landlocked this fictional country that I've created, Ravka. Um, it's cut it off from its ports and harbors. It's basi basically a reverse blockade. And it has this country in an economic stranglehold. So anytime they want ammunition or finished goods or to trade with the outside world, they have to cross this dark and face these monsters. And into this darkness goes Alina Starkov, our heroine, the little girl, the glass of milk that's turned from the prologue. Alina is, um, Alina is, I, I always say she's a bit of a mess, but she's kind of a lot of a mess. She's um, scrawny and skinny and weak, and she's not very good at her job. She's a map maker in the king's army. And um, they go into the fold, and her regiment is attacked by a flock of Volkra. And something happens that allows them to survive. There's a huge battle, and her best friend Mal, the little boy from the prologue, um, is nearly killed. But something happens to save him. And Alina um, has passed out and doesn't know what has gone down. So she has been hauled after this in front of the most powerful, the second most powerful man in the kingdom, the Darkling, who is the leader of uh, the kingdom's magical elite, the Grisha. And, um, uh, she's just heard all of this testimony of people saying that she's, that she's the reason this happened. She's the reason they're all alive. Light came out of here and all of the Grisha are doubting it and she's doubting it and she can't believe what's happening but um, now she's um, now she's got to face the Darkling herself. So <clears throat> Quiet. The Darkling barely seemed to raise his voice, but the command sliced through the crowd and silence fell. I suppressed a shiver. He might not find this joke so funny. I just hoped he wouldn't blame me for it. The Darkling wasn't known for mercy. Maybe I should be worrying less about being teased and more about being exiled to Zibea, or worse. Eva said that the Darkling had once ordered a Korporak eye healer to seal a traitor's mouth shut permanently. The man's lips, lips had been grafted together, and he had starved to death. At the time, Alexei had laughed and dismissed it as another of Eva's cra crazy stories. Now I wasn't so sure. Tracker, the Darkling said softly. What did you see? As one, the crowd turned toward Mal, who looked uneasily at me and then back at the Darkling. Nothing. I didn't see anything. The girl was right beside you. Mal nodded. You must have seen something. Mal glanced at me again, his look weighted with worry and fatigue. I'd never seen him so pale, and I wondered how much blood he had lost. I felt a surge of helpless anger. He was badly hurt. He should be resting instead of standing here answering ridiculous questions. Just tell us what you remember, Tracker, commanded Ravsky. Mal shrugged slightly and winced at the pain from his wounds. I was on my back on the deck. Alina was next to me. I saw the Volcra diving, and I knew it was coming for us. I said something, and what did you say? The Darkling's cool voice cut through the room. I don't remember, Mal said. I recognized the stubborn set of his jaw and knew he was lying. He did remember. I smelled the Volcra, saw it swooping down. Alina screamed, and then I couldn't see anything. The world was just shining. So you didn't see where the light was coming from, Tracker? Ravsky asked. Alina isn't. She couldn't. Mal shook his head. We're from the same 
village. I noticed that tiny pause, the orphan's pause. If she could do anything like that, I would know. The darkling looked, for a long, looked at Mao for a long moment and then glanced back at me. We all have secrets, he said. Mal opened his mouth as if to say more, but the darkling put up a hand to silence him. Anger flashed across Mal's features, but he shut his mouth, his lips pressed into a grim line. The darkling rose from his chair. He gestured, and the soldiers stepped back, leaving me alone to face him. The tent seemed eerily silent. Slowly, he descended the steps. I had to fight the urge to back away from him as he came to a halt in front of me. Now what do you say, Alina Starkov, he asked pleasantly. I swallowed. My throat was dry and my heart was careening from beat to beat, but I knew I had to speak. I had to make him understand that I'd had no part in any of this. There's been some kind of mistake, I said hoarsely. I didn't do anything. I, I don't know how we survived. The Darkling appeared to consider this. Then he crossed his arms, cocked his head to one side. Well, he said, his voice bemused. I like to think that I know everything that happens in Ravka, and that if I had a sun summoner living in my own country, I'd be aware of it. But something stopped the Volkra and saved the king's skiffs. He paused and waited as if he, as if, sorry, my eyes are really blurry. He paused and waited as if he expected me to solve this conundrum for him. My chin rose stubbornly. I didn't do anything, I said, not one thing. The side of the darkling's mouth twitched as if he were repressing a smile. He slid his eyes over me from head to toe and back again. I felt like something strange and shiny, a curiosity that had washed up on a lakeshore that he might kick aside with his boot. Hold out your arm, said the darkling. What? We've wasted enough time. Hold out your arm. A cold spike of fear went through me. I looked around in panic, but there was no help to be had. The soldiers stared forward, stone-faced. Mal's pale face seemed to have gone even whiter, but there was no answer in his worried eyes. Shaking, I held out my left arm. Push up your sleeve. I didn't, I didn't do anything. I'd meant to say it loudly, to proclaim it, but my voice sounded frightened and small. The darkling looked at me, waiting. I pushed up my sleeve. He spread his arms and terror washed through me as I saw his palms filling with something black that pooled and curled through the ink like ink through the air like ink in water. Now, he said, in the same soft, conversational voice, as if we were sitting together drinking tea, as if I did not stand before him shaking. Let's see what you can do. He brought his hands together and there was a sound like a thunderclap. I gasped as undulating darkness spread from his clasped hands, spilling in a black wave over me and the crowd. I was blind. The room was gone. Everything was gone. I cried out in terror as I felt the darkling's fingers close around my bare wrist. Suddenly my fear receded. It was still there, cringing like an animal inside me, but it had been pushed aside by something calm and sure and powerful, something vaguely familiar. I felt a call ring through me, and to my surprise, I felt something in me rise up to answer. I pushed it away, pushed it down. Somehow I knew that if that thing got free, it would destroy me. Nothing there, the darkling murmured. I realized how very close he was to me in the dark. My panicked mind seized on his words. That's right, nothing there, nothing at all. Now leave me be. And to my relief, that struggling thing inside me seemed to lie back down, leaving the darkling's call unanswered. Not so fast, he whispered. I felt something cold press against the side of my forearm. In the same moment that I realized it was a knife, the blade cut into my skin. P 
pain and fear rushed through me. I cried out. The thing inside me roared to the surface, spreading towards the darkling's call. I couldn't stop myself. I answered. The world exploded into blazing white light. The darkness shattered around me like glass. For a moment, I saw the faces of the crowd, their mouths wide with shock as the tent filled with shining sunlight, the air shimmering with heat. Then the darkling released his grip, and with it, his touch, when that peculiar sense of certainty that had possessed me. The radiant light disappeared, leaving ordinary candlelight in its place, but I could still feel the warm and inexplicable glow of sunshine on my skin. My legs gave way, and the darkling caught me up against his body with one surprisingly strong arm. I guess you only look like a mouse, he whispered in my ear, and then beckoned to one of his personal guards. Take her, he said, handing me over to the oprichnik, who reached out his arm to support me. I felt myself flush at the indignity of being handed over like a sack of potatoes, but I was too shaky and confused to protest. Blood was running down my arm where the darkling had given, from the cut the darkling had given me. Ivan, shouted the Darkling. A tall heart render rushed from the dais to the Darkling's side. Get her to my coach. I want her surrounded by an armed guard at all times. Take her to the little palace and stop for nothing. Ivan nodded. And bring a healer to scene to her wounds. Wait! I protested. But the Darkling was already turning away. I grabbed hold of his arm, ignoring the gasp that rose from the Grisha onlookers. There's been some kind of mistake. I don't... I'm not... My voice trailed off as the Darkling turned slowly to me, his slate eyes drifting to where my hand gripped his sleeve. I let go, but I wasn't giving up that easily. I'm not what you think I am, I whispered desperately. The Darkling stepped closer to me and said, his voice so low that only I could hear, I doubt you have any idea what you are. <laughs> when I... When I get nervous, I seem to forget to blink and my contacts move over, so it's a little hard to see the page. It's not Bozizimbo well for tour, but um, does anybody have any questions at all? Yes? So, um, what would you say was like, your biggest influence in terms of authors? Oh, um, yeah. Um, well, I think the first book I read that really made me sorry to leave the world was Dune. Um, yeah, that was a big one for me. Um, and I guess recently, I mean, I'm always hesitant to cite influences because I'm kind of like, they are so awesome. I don't know how much influence is actually in this, but um, George R. R. Martin is a huge... <laughs> That's what I like to hear. Um, um, you know, after I read the first three books of Game of Thrones, I've said this before, um, I didn't write for two months because they were so good. And if you haven't read them, you should. Um, but, uh, yeah, he's, he's a spectacular world builder and he made me, he, he, he got me into fantasy in a way that I hadn't been since I was a kid, again. So, I guess, him, yeah. But yeah, yes, um, Jen Bosworth. Jen Bosworth has a book called Struck, and we're going on tour together tomorrow. <laughs> Woo! <laughs> we will, oh, where won't we be? Uh, so many places, actually. Um, we will be, tomorrow we'll be at Mrs. Nelson's in a town called Laverne that is near Pomona. Um, and uh, then we'll be all over the place and you can see um, all of our tour dates at fiercereads.com or on my website libardugo.com um, yeah we're going all over the place so yes Jen uh, so after you got the initial idea and you were actually I mean, what did you do did you start researching did you just like sit down and start writing did you plot what was your um, I tricked myself into writing the book 
Um, I really did. Every time I sat down to uh, work, I would just say, you know, this voice would kick in. It's the reason that it took 20 years to get here. This voice that was like, this is terrible. Everything you write is dreck. No one will ever want to read this. And I, instead of fighting that voice, was like, you're right. Luckily, no one will ever see this book. Um, and I would just be like, yes, I'm just doing this for kicks. I'm just going to, all I had to do was finish it. That was the trick, was just finish, finish. And um, the first draft was entirely plot and characters. Um, world building for me sort of breaks down into two categories. And one is sort of like the sense of order and structure. And um, really, in that first draft, the only things that existed were, um, you know, the fold, the darkling's power, Alina's power, and a, 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 f a fairly strong understanding of what the Grisha could do, the way magic worked in the world. Um, you know, those parameters of, of how power worked. Um, but then all of the world building that went into making Ravka didn't happen until the second draft. Um, and then I spent about two months researching and I actually capped the research period because I knew, I know me. And it's like, it like oh, I know I really need to read this other book about folklore. And I, I really need to read these important, you know, these out of print recipe books, you know, anything to avoid getting back to the draft. So I, I capped it at two months and I didn't let myself stop. I tried to keep the momentum. Yes, Jess. She will be on the tour too. <laughs> Jessica Brody. Um, I noticed Rafa has a clear Russian influence, and I wonder why you chose the only Russian character that you have in the Shadowfall. Mostly because it's not medieval England. Oh, the question was why, why, why Russia? Because <laughs> it's not medieval England. Um, because most high fantasy is set in medieval England or medieval Europe. I felt like that had been done um, beautifully and better than I could ever do it. Um, not always, but, um, <laughs> um, and I mean, okay, there were two things. Um, the, the technology of the time period is closest to the early 1800s, and that's because um, I wanted to ask the question, what happens when you bring a gun to a magic fight? Um, you know, I mean, I, I adore Harry Potter, but there was a part of me that was always like, why doesn't somebody just muggle up and shoot Voldemort, you know? Like, shoot him! Um, and I think there are actually really good reasons, you know, the, the world building is strong enough that there are reasons why they did not. But, um, but I did want to present a world where um, the advent of modern warfare and the repeating rifle and all these things were issues, and so I wanted there to be guns. Um, and as far as, you know, the Russian influence, that clicked for me really early on, you know, this... <laughs> The fact is, you know, um, we, Russia is already kind of a fantasy land for most of us. Um, we're outsiders and we have these two very disparate sets of images. We have these incredibly beautiful images of jeweled eggs and St. Basil's and the Winter Palace. And then we have these incredibly brutal images of, of bread lines and the gulag and pogroms and, you know, just, and the list goes on. Um, and that lends itself to fantasy. Um, so that, that was what drew me to Russia as a cultural inspiration to begin with. But it's really just a touchstone. It was a point of departure. And the weird thing is that people are so used to fantasy being set in medieval England that they're like, oh, so it's alternate history. And I'm like, have you seen the map? Like, this is clearly not Russia, you know? Like, oh, so it's steampunk. And I'm like, no, it's high fantasy. It's high fantasy, you know, it's secondary world high fantasy, so, yeah. Um, oh, yes. Is there an audio book and 
Um, the question was, is there an audiobook or a movie happening? Um, we did just sell audio rights um, in English, and we sold. Thank you, yay. Um, um, I get to consult on the narrators, which I'm excited about. Um, yeah, that's what they say. <laughs> like, like, this is your narrator. What do you think? Um, we actually sold German audio rights before we sold US audio rights. So I am really, I am going to buy that. That's, I am going to download that and I will have a party for anybody who wants to listen. Um, I will say that in Italian, the Darkling's name is Lo Scuro. So it's very easy. But in German, his name is the Dunkel. Okay. <laughs> I was like, human Germany. Um, and as far as movies, you know, there's been talk, but that's what Hollywood is. It's a lot of talk, so we'll see what happens. Fingers crossed. Yeah. Yes? What if you make this into major films, our plays, and make it in Italian or German? It's great. It's like Mary Collins, you know, novel. It's fantastic. Um, oh, thank you very, very much. Um, yes? I'm pro plays and Italy and Germany when not in the Axis powers. Um, yes. yes. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> yes. Uh, the question was, did I know if it was going to be YA? Um, Yes and no. Um, I, I really didn't understand what was happening in publishing. I really had no sense of, of, of what was happening in publishing um, in terms of YA. And I'm kind of glad I didn't. Um, but uh, I knew I wanted to write a story about people at a particular place in their lives. And there are decisions you make when you're 17 that are totally acceptable. acceptable. And if you made them when you were 30, you should be punched in the face. So um, that was the story I wanted to write. And, and um, I didn't really think too much about it being YA. But I don't know. I don't know exactly. I had started, that was really when I started, you know, I, I started reading Twilight and Vampire Academy and all that kind of thing. I was like, oh, this is a genre. Like, I didn't know that. So, um, yeah. I didn't know, okay? <laughs> I live a quiet life. Um, <laughs> anybody else? <laughs> yes? What am I most excited about for tour? Um, I'm excited to meet actual, not that you aren't all delightful, because you are, but um, I'm excited to meet actual um, like teen readers. I don't know if it will be mostly adults and book bloggers, but the majority of people who have read my book have been, um, yes, like you, yay, teen reader. <laughs> um, <laughs> the one person, no. Um, so the mo most of the people who have read my book have been adults and um, book bloggers and reviewers. and. That's been lovely, but I've gotten a few reviews from teens and a few letters from teens, and it is a completely different thing. And I got this review from this girl who's, I guess, like 13 years old, and and she posted it on her blog. And people have blogs now, like you know, they like come out of the womb blogging. But um, she she said she was like, I love this story, and it teaches you to follow your heart. And I was like, that is so wrong. <laughs> but if anything, it teaches you that your heart tells lies. But, um, but it was still wonderful. It was wonderful to get that email. So I am excited. I am excited to meet readers like that. I'm excited to go to all these awesome independent bookstores. We go to these small towns where there are people hand-selling books day to day. They're the people who put me on the indie next list and, um, you know, bless them for the passion they put behind books. So, yes? Um, 
Happy Sri Birthday introduction, folks. Yeah. Um, book two of this series is done. <laughs> um, <laughs> Book three will be done by the end of the year, I hope. Um, and I am working on a horror project, but um, I have not had a lot of time to give to it. <laughs> yes! Um, uh, and, and I'll be honest, I don't know how it's going to go, because um, I actually think horror is the hardest genre to write well. So um, uh, we'll see. See if I pull it off or I don't. And um, I have another s fantasy series that I would really like to write, but um, I am not allowed to write any fantasy until I finish this trilogy. So, which is probably wise, because I don't think two sets of world building would be a great idea. But um, uh, so that's what I'm working on right now. Yes. Other than the zombies, um, what got you out of the dark place of being like Oh boy. Thank you. More crying. Um, <laughs> um, that is a really, look, the majority of people in this room know me, and they know where I was, and how different life is now, and I don't know, I don't know, except that um, I think this book, and rediscovering fantasy, and rediscovering what it was like to, you know, all those things I said about being a teenager, they're true. Fantasy and science fiction are empowering. They tell you to be strong. They tell you to be a badass. They say, be prepared. Be resourceful. War is coming. Let's do this thing. You know, literary fiction, I love literary fiction, but it's like Holden Caulfield, what did you teach me? Mope. Mope. <laughs> Climb through windows, cry quietly. You know, like, you know who taught me how to adapt and be resourceful? Paul Atreides, Dune, you know, like, you know, that's rediscovering that um, was a really big deal. And I don't know, one day you get up and you get out of bed and you're like, screw it, you know. I'm gonna do this one thing, and again, it was this trick. I'm just, I'm, I tricked myself. I tricked myself out of this, you know, long, dark period of time, um, and I just, I can't believe I'm here. Like, this is weird. I'm looking at, I'm like, I know all these people, and they are all here for me, and I still feel like I'm gonna wake up. I mean, it's just a very, it's a, an, an incredible feeling, and I, I will say, like, you know, there's this other side of the story that's like, you know, getting an agent, getting a book deal, and all that stuff, but the truth is, the advice I give to all writers, I'm always shocked when people ask me for writing advice. I'm like, you haven't read the book yet. It could be terrible. Um, but, you know, I'm always like, just finish. Just finish. It doesn't have to be good. It doesn't have to be clever. It just has to be done. Finish the book. You can rewrite it. You can rework it. You can do whatever it takes. But just finish. Because what happened was, I wrote the book. I rewrote the book. I finished it. And then, you know, you get the agent, the book deal, blah, blah, blah. But really what happens after that is, it's like the stories. Magic happens. Magical things occurred one after another. And then you end up here tonight in front of these incredible people. So, yeah. <laughs> okay. So I think we're going <laughs> to... and then you will all be free. So I'm going to tell you what's in the prize, though, because it's awesome. Um, there is... Um there is a $150 gift certificate to Voda Spa, which is the Russian spa in West Hollywood, where you can get a Russian bear massage. I don't know what that means. Um, you can also get a Siberian wildberry body scrub. 
again, don't know what's happening there, but all right. Um, there's also, um, they, they sell these hats at the spa. So you now you can have this hat. You're supposed to wear it in the banya, which is the Russian. They basically smack you with um, birch reeds, and it's good for circulation. So this, I don't know. They will take any excuse to beat you up. But um, um, this hat apparently says um, there are no generals in the spa. <laughs> There are generals everywhere, but you know, like I thought that was kind of awesome. So you get the hat. You also get um, a. Let me dig through here. A um, a little matryoshka um, uh, manicure kit. Oh, I know, so cute. Um, and you get. We actually on June fifteenth, we're coming out with um, shadow and bone nail polish. I know. Um, and we had to decide the colors. So these are all of the colors that we debated that went with the, the cover. So there's a little nail polish kit. So there's something for everybody in here, if you're into grooming. Um, and there's some Grisha swag, and there's a limited edition darkling button. So now I'm going to pick from the, from the thing. I hope it's someone good. <laughs> 88. All right, congratulations, Julia. Thank you again, everybody. We're going to sign. Please drink champagne. Take candy. We have tons of candy. Eat snacks. Thank you. Thank you so much. You've been listening to the Skylight Books author reading series. Don't forget that you can check out this and all of our other great podcasts at www.skylightbooks.com. Today's music was provided by Fragile Gang. You can check them out at MySpace, Facebook, and the iTunes Music Store. Thanks for stopping by, and we hope to see you soon.